everybody has their own headphones. I label them in baggies. <laughs> no problemo. You good, Micah? All right. Record. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, if you are out yonder in the lobby, I'm going to invite you to make your way in. And if you're already here, awesome. If you would go ahead and stand with us, we're going to begin with a time of worship uh, through song this morning. Set the cat. 
Saints communion and in 
Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. Are we good? On a rainy morning, are you thankful? Yes, that is a good answer. That is the right response. A few uh, notes, uh, announcements for you. There's communion cups at the information table on both sides at the back. Uh, so if you didn't grab it on the way in, I would encourage you to take a moment here. I won't be insulted if you go now and you grab one if you forgot to or missed one on the way in. Uh, we'll be partaking in that together at the end of service. So now is a great opportunity for you to grab that. Also, two announcements. Next week, uh, last month, we went to Fox Lake Farms. We had a blessed time there as a congregation. Um, and we're going to do it again next week. Uh, but that means we're going to pray that it's not rainy like today. Um, and we're going to watch our emails and so that we can make sure we're in the right place. If it's terrible, we will make adjustments. Okay, I know you guys can work with us on that. But uh, if you have questions about how to get there, uh, talk to me, talk to Pastor Pete after the service. Um, and we will have available the address on the church doors next week as well. So next week... October 10th, don't meet here at 11, meet at Fox Lake Farms at 11 a.m. for a blessed time outside and dress for the weather. Uh, that's the plans. Uh, one more announcement, the adult class is going to start next, not next week, in two weeks. So the week after that, October 17th, 9.30 a.m., uh, there's going to be an adult class starting in the adult classroom right next to the lounge, next to the couch area, uh, 9.30 a.m. They're going to be looking, watching The Chosen and then having some discussion about how, that, how Scripture reveals who Jesus is through that as well. So an opportunity for you to be involved in that discussion we're going to continue our worship here in song momentarily, but I want to read from Psalm 33, a psalm that proclaims how God created all things, and He sits enthroned in the heavens, and He sees His people. Very encouraging thought to have, and it ends this way. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. I pray that as we continue to sing and we sing Christ is enough, I pray that our hearts will truly be glad in him because we recognize that Christ is the penultimate revelation of the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. And it is a revelation directly to us of a God who sits enthroned over the heavens and sent his son to us at the exact right time because of his great love with which he loved us. And we are so thankful for that and we pray that our hearts rejoice in that and are reminded of that this morning. Let's take a moment together in prayer. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together as a church to assemble and worship and lift up your name, Lord, that we can open up your word, that your word can reveal the truth of your son to us, Lord. Lord, we pray right now as we continue in song, as we open up our Bibles to hear what you have to speak to us this morning, that our hearts will be ready to be filled up with the truth, truths that come from your word, Lord. We pray that we'll be reminded, our hearts will be glad in you because you sent your son, Jesus Christ, for 
for us to take the penalty that we deserve to die on the cross for our sins, Lord, that we might be raised together with Him eternally, Lord. We look forward to that day. And so we pray that we can be reminded this morning of the steadfast love of the Lord that truly never ceases. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I invite you to go ahead and stand as we continue with our time of worship. Everything I need is in you Everything 
You guys can have a seat. Good morning, Grace Chapel. So good to see you today. The kids are dismissing. If you missed out on that, they're heading back to their classes for instruction today, and we get ours today also. Um, Just want to re-emphasize what I've been saying for the last two weeks as we go through this study in the book of Judges together, that you will get so much more if you will read Judges for yourself. If, especially if you read the chapters ahead of where we're going, this is going to mean so much more for you that God's going to do in your life with this Holy Spirit. And you will grow and apply so much more of this book to your daily life if you study Judges. Don't just read it. If you study it, and one of the things we've prepared for you to help you through this process in the next eight weeks is a study guide. It's available on the back table. It's available online. You can do it yourself. You can do it within a small group context, but I just can't emphasize that enough. I have learned the hard way over years and years of walking with God that you got to read His Word, and then you got to study it. you got to internalize it. In the book of Judges, you and I, over these weeks, are going to be given insider information. It's, it's really cool as you, as you read through it, as to what's really going down. Uh, and we get to witness God's salvation as it's being worked out through flawed human judges, through what we're calling in this study, broken saviors. And what these men, and in today's text, a woman are really doing, you find this out as you read, read between the lines, is they're pointing to our only hope. Every last one of them is pointing to the un, unflawed, divine judge, the unbroken Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what they're all about. And this is exactly how when you come into the New Testament, the book of Hebrews instructs us exactly how we're supposed to read the book of Judges. It's pretty cool. It's in Hebrews chapter 11 and verses 32 to 34. And the writer of Hebrews says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me if I told you all the stories about Gideon, one of the judges, Barak, judge we're going to look at today, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, who come just after the book of Judges through the monarchy, who through faith, yes, you see, that's right. The sacred text of the New Testament says that these broken, messed up people did display faith. You may be reading some of the passages and going, what is going on here? (laughs) At least I do, over and over. But it says here in Hebrews, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. These same judges that we're reading about, five verses later in the next chapter of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 39, says that they were all commended through their faith. 
and that they are now a part of this special group that you and I get to be a part of, who in the next chapter, we're told, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, are described as a great cloud of witnesses. Witnesses. What is the purpose of these witnesses? What is a purpose for you and I as witnesses to consider, to look forward to, as the text says, Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith? Sometimes it's hard to get that when you read the book of Judges, that they're actually pointing to Jesus Christ. I'd like to suggest that as I look at our world today and the Christian community, sometimes it's hard to get that. That we, as a whole church body, not just Grace Chapel, but worldwide, are pointing to Jesus, because sometimes I don't think we are. And according to how the book of Hebrews describes these narratives, the book of Judges does not have as its main message how to be successful in life. It doesn't have as its main message, be the hero you were meant to be. Be all that you can be. It's way more than this. But that's where the Christian community sometimes stops. It's ultimately about faith in God, because that's all that matters once this life is over and we're gone and this place is burned up and gone. It's ultimately about faith in God through Jesus Christ alone. That is all that matters. And the evidence or the witness of your faith and my faith or the lack thereof just like these judges, is going to be available for everybody to see. For instance, let's let's just just do this. Let's do an application. For instance, let's consider something as simple as church attendance, which can, you know, you can go either way with this. Church attendance. What do people, like your neighbors, think is the reason you and I come to church on Sunday mornings or any time during the week? You don't have to say it up, but just think now. What do you think that they are in their mind, and not what they say, but in their really heart of hearts, why do they think you and I get up on Sunday morning and come to church, even when it's raining? Why? For me, I have to be honest, they probably think, well, it's his job, <laughs> right? It's a paycheck. Yeah, that's, what, that's his career. That's what he does. He has to be there right? I'm just being honest. And for many, especially if they watch religious TV, they probably get the idea, at least when I've ever watched it, this is what I get, you're going to learn how to be happy. You're going to learn how to be successful in life. You're going to learn how to be a good person. You're going to learn how to be the best you that you can be. And I've heard those phrases over and over again when I watch TV. So I ask myself, is that really the prime self-serving, motivating factor to get me out of bed to gather together with you? Is that why we're here? Or does the world know by watching us, it's just about God? that it's not all about money. It's not all about success, 
personal improvement, significance. It's not some sort of lucky charm to get on God's good side. Does the world know it's just about God and that He is enough of a reason? That any other reason, any other blessing that comes along in our life beyond just worshiping God, it's an added bonus. It's like gravy on my mashed potatoes. They don't have to understand that. The world does not even have to comprehend that. The world just needs to see that, that you and I are faithful, that all of us are here today because we are compelled by the Holy Spirit of God to be here because we know it's not enough to worship God individually through the week. That's not enough. We hunger and we thirst. We're dry. And we want to show God the unifying power of His Holy Spirit evidenced in all of our lives as we gather together for only one reason, which is Him. There's a song we sang this morning. Did you catch it? talks about Jesus being more than enough. Christ is enough for me. Is that why we showed up? I'll leave that with you. Judges chapter 4 and 5, that's where we are today. Judges 4 and 5. If you read really fast, you can uh, get ahead and you'll be all ready to go. It, these chapters are so interesting. I mean, I mean, the first three were, and the next will be also, but four and five are really interesting to me personally, not just because of the events they describe, but each chapter deals with the same event. If you've read ahead, you probably picked that up. Chapter four is written from the perspective of a historian. Chapter five is written from the perspective of a poet-songwriter. Chapter four is about what happened? Just give me the facts, facts, right? Chapter 5 is about how God made all that happen. For me, it's like reading, like say, Sunday morning newspaper. I don't get one. Do you get one? I don't get one. But anyway, say you got the Sunday morning newspaper and you read it, and what would you read about? You would read about a recap of everything that happened in the world this last week. And you'd go, this is nuts. <laughs> this world is crazy, right? You, you do that, and you probably agree with me. But then, before you come to church, you get a special delivery, and it tells you about all those events, but it tells you specifically how God was miraculously behind every one of those events, making them happen, making them happen according to His plan, and how it all fit in, and how it all went down last week. Wouldn't that be cool to get to see that? And you go, oh, now I get it. It's not nuts. Well, it's nuts on purpose. So we're going to spend most of our time today looking at chapter 4, and then you can read chapter 5 on your own. It's actually a song. It's actually a duet by a male-female duet. It's pretty, 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 pretty cool. I guess they just felt I needed to cut a record. I don't know who the band was or anything, but it's a, it's a song, and it will provide you with this richer, deeper 
perspective, and maybe you can come up with a tune to go along with it. And maybe Jason can do that, and he can sing it for us next week at the, at the barn. Word of warning, word of warning, it's not PG. It's not rated PG at all, and it's definitely not PC, okay, just so, so you know before you hit it. Have you noticed that we always need a godly ruler? I mean, back then they needed it, and even today, what do people want? Someone who would just be just and rule and make decisions on a godly moral basis. Well, we read in verse 1 of chapter 4, with the death of Ehud, remember we looked at the judges, two judges last week in chapter 3. Well, eventually they're human, right? So they're going to die. And in verse 4 it says, when he died, the Israelites once again, surprise, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the cycle that we were introduced to back in chapter 2 and saw lived out twice in chapter 3, it's going to begin one more time. Remember that cycle? There it is up on, the, up on the screen. This time, the Israelites are finding themselves after they sin in, under the heel of oppression from this king from, in Canaan uh, called Jabin. That's his name. Now, I want you to stop just right there for a second. As you, as you look at that, so this king, uh, Jabin, is oppressing the people. If you remember back to chapter 1, what were they supposed to do? Drive out the Canaanites and the inhabitants. And in chapter 1, Judah, the lead tribe, was said, you go take care of this area. And what did they see in, in, in the plains? They saw these iron chariots. And they said, yes, God is with us, but no, we're not going to do that. If Israel had only trusted and obeyed back in the beginning, back in chapter 1, Jabin would not have even been there. Interesting. So his commander, his name is Sisera, and it says in the text that he has 900 iron chariots. That's like the M1 tanks, the Abrams tanks of our day. They're, fe they're feared. You see them coming towards you, it's like, we're dead. Nothing's going to stop these guys. It's what scared the tribes of Judah when they saw them. The oppression from this third oppression is worse than the first two cycles, and it's described as cruel. And if you read the poem song in chapter 5, you'll see just how cruel, especially Cicero was. It's disgusting. And it lasts 20 years. And just like you did last week, I want you all to guess, what does Israel do after 20 years? That's right. They cry out to the Lord for help. That's what it says in the text. You're going to read that over and over again. So now enter verse 4, Deborah. She's a prophetess, and she was judging Israel at that time, the text says. And as a prophetess, Debbie delivers the word of God. You can call her Debbie it's for short. It's fine. And we see her doing this in verse 6 when she declares to Barak, um, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. She's delivering messages of the Lord. And we read in verses 5 in particular that she's leading Israel. She's actually holding court at a particular location. Not, not a queen's court. She's not the queen or anything like that. She's a judge. It's an actual courtroom. And she's the judge. And Israelites would come, it says, to hear, 
to her for judgment in verse 5. So clearly she's recognized as a, a true prophet of God, which means that every one of her prophecies came true, right? So she's a prophetess as declared by Scripture, recognized to be a wise counselor and judge, and the people come to her to settle all kinds of matters. My neighbor did this. His leaves are on my lawn. What should we do? And she takes care of it in all these cases. And, and, and the interesting thing here, what kind of society is this? It's a male-dominated world. And here you've got the judge of Israel is this woman, Deborah. So she's very different. She's very different than all the other judges we're going to encounter before her and after her. She led from wisdom. She led from character. She didn't lead from sheer might and strength or even treachery as we saw last week. And she comes the closest to being a godly leader of the people. Isn't that interesting that God chooses a woman in a male-dominated society for over a period of over 400 years to be the one true godly character. I find that interesting. Instead of a general or a warrior, the kind of leader we all want, it's going to make everything right. And in all of this, you and I are reminded that God's chosen leader does not simply rescue, but they rule. And Deborah is arguably the greatest pointer to the coming monarchy under David and even to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, about whom we are told that he will bear the governments on his shoulders, and he is called Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, establishing and upholding his kingdom with justice and with righteousness. We hunger for godly rulers, but we also need a godly rescuer. Deborah is alone among the judges, not a warrior. She doesn't pick up a sword. She doesn't go to battle, as far as we're told. She's not the one who through, through whom God's strength is shown, and she rescues Israel by defeating the oppressors. Instead, in verse 6, we read, she sent for Barak. And she passed God's commission prophetically onto him. So it's Barak in verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> we're told he's to take 10,000 men. So that sounds like a lot of guys, right? 10,000 foot soldiers? Sounds like a lot. He's to take these 10,000 foot soldiers to a mountain, God says, Mount Tabor. You're supposed, to, you're supposed to go there, Mount Tabor. And it is he, Barak, to whom God will give the victory over Sisera. In every other case, as we go through judges together, from the first judge last week, Othniel, to the last judge, Samson, there is always only one. There is this single human hero. Here we're going to find three. This is kind of, kind of different story, totally, totally different, these two chapters. And as you're going to see in the song, in chapter 5, actually the ultimate honor doesn't go to one, two, or even all three of these people who God used. It goes expressly to the Lord. So it's really, really cool, verse 5. I mean, chapter 5. So she tells Barak, you're the guy. Barak's response to God's call through Deborah and then Deborah's reply to him has been seen in two ways over the, over the centuries, uh, over hundreds and hundreds of years. 
believers have looked at this through, through two different lenses. One is pessimistic, and one is optimistic. So let's read it, and you, you decide. Verse 8 and 9. <clears throat> Barak said to her, If you will go with me, Deborah, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Let's look at the pessimistic view. It sees this as a timid lack of faith because Barak asked Deborah to go with him and refused to go if she didn't go. That's the way, I remember, I, remember, uh, I grew up in the church, I don't know how many of you did, but I remember being a kid and hearing this story all the time, and it was always with that perspective that here's a guy who should be leading and he's not, so a woman has to come along and set him straight and get him going, and actually the NIV, I think it was, I think the church I must have been going to at the time when I was a kid used the NIV translation because, I, and I'm not picking on the NIV, I know I did last week. Well, I'm going to pick on it again. Anyway, so it renders this verse in a way to make you think that. So if you don't study beyond this, this is what you're going to think. It renders verse 9 um, that Deborah agrees to go with him. And then the NIV says, but because of the way you are going about this, you're not going to get the honor and the Lord's going to turn Cicero over to a woman. That's what the NIV says. So you're refusing simply to trust and obey God, Barak. And this is how it's going to go down. So the pessimistic view sees this guy um, as having the honor withheld from him. And what Deborah's response to him is a a rebuke for his lack of obedient faith. And that's how I was brought up until I started studying it myself. But if you have the pessimistic view, knock yourself out. It's fine. So it sees... The problem is that the book of Hebrews commends him for his faith. So this view has to adjust to make room for that. So the pessimistic view sees Barak's charge down the mountain with 10,000 men into the teeth of uh, iron chariots. That's the point where he shows commendable faith according to Hebrews 11.32 and that he's commended for. I, I prefer the optimistic view. Uh, and it rests on the fact that this verse in verse 9 can just as easily be translated as, on the expedition you are undertaking, the honor will not be yours. Simple. And even, I'd like to point out that if you have an NIV, if you go down to a little footnote at the bottom, if you happen to read those, it has that translation as an alternative. So Deborah is not rebuking Barak, but simply telling him that though he's going to have to charge down a hillside into the teeth of 900 iron chariots, he's not going to get the full honor for it. So it's a prophetic statement of fact. This is what's going to happen. It's not a verdict on his face. You're going to be a hero, but you're not going to get the ultimate prize of Sisera himself. So Barak's desire to take Deborah with him 
It's not disobedience, but seen as a recognition that here is the judge of Israel, for once a godly person who speaks God's word and it always comes true. I'm going to ask you, if you're going into battle, do you not want her to go with you? <laughs> do you not want to bring her along? Absolutely. Anyway, faith, which every one of these judges apparently shows according to Hebrews. Faith can be shown in the face of humanly speaking overwhelming odds. An iron chariot, if you do the research, will cut through foot soldiers like a hot knife through butter every time. 900 chariots could easily beat 10,000 men every time. And Barak's a military man. He's, he can even get the dice and go, come on, 10,000 men. <laughs> chariots. Every time. That's what's going to happen. He knows this. But he still fights. He still goes to the top of that mountain, waits for the, when are we supposed to do this thing? and charges down with those men. Faith is humble. I see a lot of arrogance today. Faith is not honor-seeking. I see a lot of people wanting everybody to know what they did. Aren't you tempted that way, like I am too? Barak obeys God and leads his men down the mountain knowing so the victory that God's going to give is going to necessarily all be His. In His faith, He foreshadows our great Deliverer, who, through, who though in very nature was God, the rightful ruler, in Philippians 2, 4 and 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for you and for me. Judges 4.15. How does the story end? The Lord routed Sisera. Did you see that? Who? The Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots by the sword. He, he let the guys pull out their swords and do some stuff. Barak's forces were no match for Sisera's. But Sisera's forces were no match for God's. Sisera, who had been so secure in the power of his iron chariots, we read in verse 15, abandons his own chariot and he runs off like a rabbit, on foot, taken off for the, for the hills. And all that remains now is for Barak to catch up to him, capture him, declare victory, and the whole thing's over. But there's this, there's this strange break. Did you, did you notice this as you were reading it through? You did read it through, right? Yeah, okay. So there's this strange break in the narrative between you know, a Barak's victory over Sisera. See, you got verse 10, 
and you've got 10,000 men standing on the top of a hill, mountain, ready to attack, ready for battle. Later in verse 12 and 13, you've got Sisera, who's about to summon his 900 chariots to meet this onslaught, but in between those two verses, the narrator gives us verse 11, and it's like, what? Like, too much information, please. I mean, what what are you doing here? Listen, now, so right in the middle of the battle, it's about to start, and then it goes, now, Herber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, who are the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. <laughs> okay. And he had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. And then it goes on with the story. It's like, it's apparently near the battleground. We're not told why this guy named Heber even did this, and he plays no part in the battle whatsoever, but his wife, Yael, suddenly becomes very integral to the plot. So Sisera is running on foot because he's abandoned his chariot, and he reaches the tent of Yaal, which means safety, right? Because Yaal's family and, and the Kenites are friends of Sisera's boss, the king of the Canaanites. So Yaal welcomes him, gives him something to drink, He's been running, he's all sweaty, he's lost the battle, and lets him go to sleep, to rest. That's in verses 18 through 21. And then in 21, here we go. This is, this is the part that all, all, the, all the guys like. She took a tent peg. <laughs> Something bad's going to happen. And she took a hammer. Okay, tent peg and a hammer. It's starting to add up. Then she went softly to him. And drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. All it's missing is sound effects. And we really don't need the next three words. And he died. He's like, I I can't get up. I'm sorry. That's just how my mind goes. Man, what was in that drink? So Yaal taking out Sisera this way deepens the irony of this passage and what's coming in the song in in chapter 5. You see, setting up and taking down tents in this society was what kind of work? Woman's work. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just saying, in this society. So a tent peg and a hammer was essentially a woman's household appliance. It really was. It's what the women would have, and they they know how to work it, and the guy's like, what's that? Uh, So she killed him with, you know, basically a knife and fork type of thing. Plus, in that time, death for a warrior, let alone a general, at the hands of a woman was humiliating. And all of this was designed by God to make Sisera's death the most devastating defeat possible. It also shows that Deborah was what kind of a prophet? She was a prophet of God because it came true. 
When Barak finally catches up on the trail of Sisera, he passes Yael's tent, and she promises in verse 22, I'm going to show you the man you're looking for. He's, he's, he's in my tent. So you can imagine Barak hearing these, these. He's probably got, takes out his sword. He's, uh, he's entering the tent, and he's probably saying, you know, stay behind me. I need to protect you. This guy's, this guy's bad news, so stay behind me. I want to look out for you. Only to discover Sisera on the ground, dead, <laughs> with a tent peg fastening his head to the ground. He's not going anywhere. And in verse 23 and 24, so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan, which they were supposed to do about 100 years before. So just a little note here, just about Yael. Her method, her methodology, is a clear violation of even just, just two of the Ten Commandments. She lies and she kills. She takes life. She also broke the very strong policies and rules of Mideastern hospitality. <laughs> she, she just did. Uh, in one fell, well, hammer blow, actually, um, she wiped them all out. It was treachery by the standards of any culture. And what you and I have to remember, especially as we're going through this, this book of Judges together, is that when you're reading Scripture you're going to often see that God uses people to do what He wants to happen without violating their personal responsibility for the actions they take, without condoning their methods. For instance, remember God's use of wicked Pharaoh? Do you remember God's use of Pilate, the governor, who washed his hands at Jesus' trial? so that he could be crucified. The point here is that God always wins. Can you imagine going into every sporting competition on the planet with God actually on your side? Can you imagine how unfair that would be? It's no wonder so many prayers before games, before battles in war, before battles in the corporate office include that God is on our side. The world sometimes gets it more than we do, that that's important. And in chapter 4, the Lord is named only, named only in four verses, and three of those are as Deborah is speaking for him on his behalf. In chapter 5, God is everywhere. In the first five verses of chapter 5, God receives the praise through singing. And Deborah and Barak team up for this duet, and they're, they're singing this song in chapter 5, and they describe right off the get-go that all the princes of Israel, all the, all the chiefs of, of, of the tribes, are, are leading their men. Now, how does that praise God? Well, the song explains that while they march down that mountain... God was also on the march. He was showing his power. And do you know how he showed his power? It's kind of strange here. It'll, it'll make sense in a moment. 
He showed his power to these men going down the mountain by pouring rain down on them. As God's warriors advanced down the mountain, the one before whom mountains quake was going to war on behalf of his children. In verses 19 through 22, we're told why this was the Lord's victory. In verse 20, the God who rules all of nature, even the stars in the heavens, was fighting against the enemy. In verse 21, it reveals how Sisera's unbeat, unbeatable chariots were rendered useless on that day. The God, it says, who made the clouds pour down water caused the river that the chariots were parked beside to flood, sweeping the chariots away. So as Barak advanced down that mountainside, the chariots disappeared. And by the way, Barak, who's singing this song with, with Deborah, isn't even mentioned in chapter 5. I think the warriors, they'd, they'd be like, you know, oh no, it's raining, and we got all this armor on, we're on foot, we're running down a mountain to our death. Uh, oh no. And then they see the chariots washed away, and they go, they'd be like, oh yes, it's raining. <laughs> this is awesome. Our God has given us the victory. All we have to do is show up and mop up, clean up, chase down the enemy. So Sisera, a general, would have never arranged his chariots next to a river if he had been expecting rain. There's no sign of rain, or else he's a complete idiot, and he's not. It was probably even the dry season, not the wet season. But God, through Deborah, told Israel just where to fight where to go, where to lure Sisera into a place where he, God, would destroy him in a way that utterly proved it had to be God. So what's the lesson for you and I as God's children? I need to go buy myself a hammer and a tent peg. No. Not unless you're going camping. Simply, it's really simple today. God wins. Is that enough? God wins. And so the blessing for you and I day to day is to be found in fighting for and with him for the sake of the gospel message. Putting ourselves in ministry positions, whatever the odds and whatever, worldly speaking, the likely outcome. Remember, it's not like the Lord requires any help, as he proved so directly in chapter 5, but that God allows you and I, his children, to help. He allows that. And so we end with chapter 5, verse 24. This is kind of outstanding, actually, I think. Most blessed be woman, most blessed of woman be Yael. Wow. Despite being a Kenite, she's not an Israelite. She took her place in this story and in this song and was used by God to kill Israel's enemy. 
Verse 31, and the land had rest for 40 years. We see on multiple occasions, and we talked in detail about this last week, explaining what does it mean to forget God? Because we really, we don't forget Him. We talked about that last week. But we see on multiple occasions that Israel forgot God, and we all know that we forget God. How can we remember? There are many answers to that question, just a whole host. But here are three suggestions for us today because it's Communion Sunday. The first one, Jesus gave us a visual reminder. He gave us a visual reminder of what He has done for us through the Lord's Supper, Communion, the Lord's Table. When Jesus says in Luke 22, 19, do this in remembrance of me, he's telling you and I that this picture meal is his way of of continually renewing the reality of the gospel in in our minds and in our hearts. It's probably a place where we should show up regularly. And then the second one is, whenever we do read the Bible, like we just did today, we should not just study it for its content. It's going to be interesting at times. But we should learn to meditate on it. We should learn to reflect on it so that we don't only just acknowledge the truths, God loves me, but we remember them and we sense them and we are moved to some sort of action because of them. God loves me, therefore... I should love others, and this is how I can love others this afternoon. And the third place, third reason, way that we can remember, Jesus intended the Lord's Supper to be a community event. That's why we do it together. It's not that you can't do it alone, but its intention for the church is that we do it in community. And we need to be reminded of and study and apply God's truths in community. When several people get together and they consider a particular biblical truth, inevitably I've always found there's at least one person in the group who goes, wow, you know, like, oh, I've got to, I've got to make a change. I need to do this because of what I'm reading here. This is the first time I've ever seen that. And, and, and the sense that that person has for the truth of God's Word can have this effect of spreading to the others in the group. At least it should. Some of us who at that particular moment, on that particular day, might be a little dry, might be a little stagnant, and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that 20 years ago. We don't say that out loud because that would be rude. But in our heart, we're going, yeah, yeah, I saw that. I mean, you're just, you just seeing this now? Well, that's nice that you saw that 20 years ago. But what's changed in your character as a result of seeing that 20 years ago? Are you a 20-year matured believer in Jesus Christ, or are you just one year matured and you've repeated it 20 times? This communion we share together today, I'm going to ask that we take the next minute or so in prayer, preparing our minds and preparing our hearts to celebrate and to remember what God has done for us. Take a few moments.
Our God and our Heavenly Father, we, in one mind, in one body, celebrate, remember, and are challenged by the gospel message that your Son and our Savior offered his life for the sins of the world, that his body was sacrificed on our account, that his blood was shed and covered our sins. And Lord, we take these elements today not just acknowledging that that's a fact, but with the prayer that it would change our life this afternoon as we interact with those who may not know, who may not have heard this truth, this love story of sacrifice. And we pray this in the name of Jesus who makes this event even possible. Amen. Let's together take the bread. Let's take the cup. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. In one voice, we're going to lift our, our hearts and our voices to God. You know, when we're doing life and we do it together, there are times, probably more than we'd like to consider, where we're striving after things in this plan- on this planet things in this world. They tempt us. They lure us. And sometimes they're so innocent. It's not like they're bad things, but they captivate us. And like Scripture tells us, we are often more captivated and serve the things of this world more than we serve the creator of those things. It'll be a constant temptation. It'll be a constant battle and struggle for each of us Every day that we wake up, there's going to be this lure. And we get an opportunity when we come together uh, for worship, especially on Sundays and in our small groups as we study God's Word, to remind ourselves that that is a real battle and to be honest with ourselves and to go to God's Word for answers. If there was ever a good summary for judges and for our current fallen world, that you can read about in the newspaper. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, and by the way, who is blessed forever. Amen? Amen? Let's raise our voices as one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we...
acknowledge the temptations that are in our life each and every day. We acknowledge that the evil one seeks to sway us, to get us off course from the gospel and get us on all sorts of other tangents. And God, we would pray for your strength, your patience, your mercy. We thank you for the forgiveness that is ours upon the confession of our sins. And Lord, we, we look forward to how you're going to use each of us, even in the same ways you used the judges thousands of years ago to use us in a world that is wicked, it's corrupt, it's headed to destruction. But Lord, there are those you have called. There are those you have loved. Lead us to them. Open their hearts and their minds to the truth of the gospel message, and may it be found on our lips. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Guys, you are dismissed. We will see you next week at the farm. Have a good week.